Last week, we spent uh, some time talking through um, mainly three issues with relationship to Christianity and the arts, and we looked at externalism, formalism, and ritualism, and the relationship between these three. We looked at what the Bible has to say about them, how uh, the prophets especially responded to these things, and uh, how we hopefully were able to uh, see that none of these three things... Uh, Gary, I'm getting a little bit of an echo here. I don't know if I'm... Are you guys hearing that as well? All right. Um, we, got, we saw, hopefully, that none of these three things were outrightly condemned uh, throughout the Scriptures. It was the, the misuse of each of them. It was how they were being utilized in worship, how they were being utilized in the daily life amongst the people of God that became the problem. And then we looked at the various things that we do in part, and we're going to continue on that this morning, uh, that we can look at and say are external, are uh, part of, uh, they are forms, and they are ritualistic. And that these things in and of themselves are not wrong, it's simply a matter of how they are utilized and for what they are utilized. And so we said that the cure to these things, as they can become problematic, and one of the examples we used was the Lord's Prayer. It is external. It's something we pray out in the open. It is a form. It's, and it's been given to us in a form. The Lord Jesus outlined that for us. It, is, it, it can be done in a ritualistic way as a part of a, a church's liturgy that we pray together, the Lord's Prayer. And we would never look at the Lord's Prayer and say that it in and of itself is a problem, but it can be done in a problematic way because the external or the formalism or the ritualism of it all can just simply become something that we do mechanically. It's not of the heart. It's simply of uh, an external nature. And so the cure to these things when they become problematic was never to throw them out, but to reform them and to continue to associate uh, the right uh, words with the right signs and, and the right forms with the right rituals. Um, because the Bible is not disjointed. Um, these, these things work together, and we see it all, all throughout. I mentioned the rainbow in the Noahic covenant. We have an external to remind us of a promise that God has given. And one of the ways we wrongly uh, look at that is that we would see a rainbow in the sky, and we would not even give thought to what God has promised, that we would not, it would not even enter our minds, because it becomes, especially in South Georgia, certain times of the year, it becomes very familiar to us to see rainbows in the sky. And so maybe we never even give thought to what that is associated with. It is something in nature that God has given for all of mankind because it is a promise to all of mankind uh, that God will never destroy the earth by flood again. And so there are many of these things, and we, we talked a bit about them in terms of uh, corporate worship as well. And we said that corporate worship has to take place. It's commanded by God. But think of all of the forms that are in corporate worship. There's a, there's a tendency, and I do believe this is one of the areas where uh, because, and we have to think of it contextually, the Reformers were responding to all of the abuses of Roman Catholicism in these three areas especially, that they sort of swung 
a pendulum all the way to the other side, and uh, they did their best to do away with all of this in their minds, but really you never escape these things, right? Externalism, formalism, ritualism are always a part of what we do. It's a matter of what we do with them. Um, and so, for example, we looked at uh, buildings. What do our buildings communicate? What do church buildings communicate about what, uh, what we are doing? Uh, one we didn't talk about last week is what about the furniture of the church? What does this massive arc of a thing uh, mean? When you walk in the building and you see this up here, what does it communicate about our church? What do you think? Yeah, so it's up on a platform, right? It's, um, by all uh, standards, it's rather large. Some of you have tried to move this. It's a little heavy. Um, it's, it's up here, and we sit down there, right, Rob? Right, so there's, a, there's certainly uh, something that uh, today would often be defined as more a traditional understanding of what that is like, but even to some that's very modern because it's not, uh, I'm not climbing a spiral staircase to get up, and it's way up there, and everyone's like this the whole time, right? Yeah, Derek? Right, and if you add to that um, in even more formal settings, if you will. Uh, the, we talked about that sometimes you'll see clergy wearing the robe as well. So they're uh, the, a lifted pulpit with a robe, and all of this is intended to communicate something, though, as a form, right? That this is not about the man at all. We're trying to hide the man as much as possible, but the Word is high and lifted up, and we are sitting, literally sitting underneath the Word as it is being proclaimed. And so we are communicating something. Now, I think I had mentioned this at the time. I had the privilege of designing this beast and the table to go with it with an artist, a carpenter that we hired from Jessup, Georgia, and, uh, and we spent a lot of time thinking about this. And what is it communicating? Uh, the shape of it was important. Uh, the Puritans called the pulpit the sacred desk because this is where they came to do work uh, before the people of God to communicate what God has said from His Word. And that's why it's shaped somewhat like uh, if you sort of look at the sides and everything, it sort of has the feel of a, of a desk. But it's a sacred desk. It's in the church. It's where the Word of God is communicated from. The table in front communicates something as well. Um, Reformed churches especially have always associated word and sacrament, that the table being where the Lord's Supper is, uh, is served from. So those two things together as a part of the worship of God. Yeah. Right, was, I'm going to get there. Stop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right, well, there is an element to that <clears throat> that is important, and it goes at the same time in hiding the man himself, it is communicating, too, that this is a representative of God. This is one who is speaking the Word of God and is easily identifiable as, uh, as that one. Um, sure. Well, and, uh, of course, all these things 
And in large part, a lot of this, as we've talked through the arts in general, has a lot to do with what we understand uh, about the intent, why things are the way they are, and everything else. So, for example, why during Sunday school, why are we down here and not up there? That's on purpose. Why do you think that is? We're not, in this time, we're having a discussion, right? We're communicating with one another. This is far more informal, but this is also not us standing here and proclaiming at all times, hopefully, as it goes on there, here's what the Lord has to say directly from his word on every matter that we're going to bring up. We talk about all sorts of different things here. Now, of course, we want that to be rooted in scripture. We want the things we talk about to be biblical, uh, but... It's not, uh, it's not the same. It is not the same form. It's not the same external. It's not the same uh, in terms of the ritual. It's different, and we want to communicate just by our geography in this room that it is different, uh, that when we enter into the sacred desk that we're doing a different kind of work, and that kind of work is, uh, is, is something that should be separated from the other work that goes on in the church. It's of a wholly different kind. And so these things matter. I was listening to R.C. Sproul talk about this. He said, have you ever walked into a church and as soon as you walk in, you smell something and you realize immediately that that church is dead because you can smell the death in the church? And uh, he was saying, you know, and he was getting to the reality that all of, all of our senses are involved in our worship. And uh, he was communicating this to a pastor who was saying, you know, our church has been dwindling for years and no matter what goes on, we just can't seem to keep people in the church and they keep leaving and everything else. And he said, well, it's because as soon as you walk in the door, your church smells dead. You need to do something about the old, dusty, muggy smell that is there. And there's a reality to that. All of our senses are involved, whether we recognize it or not, right? Whether we realize or not uh, that all of this is going on, it is. And so we have to think through why we have the forms that we have. We cannot escape our senses. So part of that communication, as uh, was almost rudely hijacked from my class here. Why do we have our music over here? Why do we have this um, hot tub over here? Redeemer Baptist Church and Spa. Thought about, that was one of the suggested names when we worked through the name change. Um, <laughs> why is all of this over here? Why don't we extend the platform out here? about to here or so and just bring all that stuff and set it up right here next to the pulpit. Anyone want to add to that? Derek? Yeah, good. So our musicians, as wonderful as they are, and I'm going to talk about that some in our sermon today, are not there to perform for us. They're not there to do a show for us. They are there to assist us in our worship of the Lord. As we have music in the church, what is the primary aspect of our music within the church? Of all that we do, the piano, the, the guitar, the drums, the, the singing, the, what, what of all of that is most important? 
Okay, us involved in the Jesus, yes. What's that? Yeah, worship. But what part, what aspect of the music? The words, what we're singing, right? What we're saying. And I'm not going to get much into that now because our sermon today addresses all of that. But that's the focus, right? That all of our attention is not primarily on what's going on here, but on what's being said here as we communicate these truths to one another. Now, there's an important element to that that we have to keep in mind. What's done over here needs to be done excellently so that it's not a distraction from what we're trying to communicate in those words, right? If it's not done well, then what are we doing? We're focusing our attention on, oh my goodness, that's, uh, that doesn't sound very good, right? And that takes our attention, takes our focus away. And so we want anything we're doing in the church before the Lord, utilizing the gifts that He's given us to the best of our ability uh, to make beautiful uh, music, to, to uh, preach the Word skillfully, whatever those things are, that they are beautiful and they're well-intentioned and that uh, we're not just sloppily throwing it together. And there's a lot of elements to that, the style, you know, we, and we think a lot about these things. We talk a lot about these things here. What is the, is this song, is this something, the words may be great, but is the music it's set to, is it singable? Is it something, in, unless, you're a, unless you know how to read music and you know four-part harmony, can we even sing it? And if, if not, then we just need not do that because the average churchgoer, especially in 2019, uh, they, don't, they don't even know what a music staff looks like, let alone how to read those little dots that are on it. You know? So uh, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, I didn't even look at Steve, but... <laughs> oh, he played the trombone. That's right. He, liked, he played the trombone so that he could blow his spit out on the people that sat below him. That's what he told me. Yeah. <laughs> so all of the, all these things are... are they're there, they're, real, they're under the surface, we recognize them, but if you don't focus on them and pay attention to them, we just sort of forget. And in many ways, that's, that's the intention, that we, we enter in, we, we partake of the worship of God, and yet we're not distracted by these forms, these externals, and yet they are there to assist us, and without them we would recognize that they are not there or that they're not being done well or whatever the case may be. Uh, the same, I mentioned, our, our baptismal. I, when I came to this church, I was excited to see that there because a lot of churches have them, you know, they'll be like in the floor of the platform or whatever, or they're hidden behind a curtain or whatever else. But if, we're, if we believe it's a sacrament of the church, it should be a visible sacrament. Our Pado baptist brethren have a... Um, uh, I don't forget what it's called. What is it called? Font, right? Is it a font? Yeah, it's, it's here, like up here. So we have the, the table. We have, uh, we have the, the a baptismal, if you will, of whatever uh, that is. And that's always been a part, again, of the, especially the Reformed tradition. We're communicating something with visible signs. Uh, the, the Lord's Supper and baptism in and of themselves are forms they're ritualistic, they're formal, they are external. And yet the Lord ordained these for our use in worship that we would have visible representations of what the Lord is doing 
in the gospel in his covenant community. So, all of this leads to this question that we've sort of been um, hinting at through this time, is this question about beauty. And at any time, if you thought about or talked about anything between 1750 and about 1930, you ask educated people to describe poetry or art or music and what the purpose of it is and what the main objective of it all is, they would have replied, beauty. And if you would have asked uh, the point of that, you would have learned that beauty is a value. We've said uh, truth, goodness, and beauty, that it is one of these values that uh, that has been a part of humanity, has been a part of human cultures, and has been seen as an important aspect. Well, then you get into the 20th century especially, and beauty stopped being an important element, and art increasingly aimed to be disturbing, to create and to unsettle uh, sort of the moral taboos of the society, especially in the West. And so it it was no longer beauty that was aimed at. In fact, it was the exact opposite. The goal was for um, to get to a place of originality, however that can be achieved. And sometimes uh, at any cost and in many ways some of the most grotesque things that you can imagine. And so art became the cult of ugliness. Uh, Architecture became rather soulless. If you've ever been to Orlando and seen the unused uh, building in Orlando, Florida, that just stands as a monument to ugly architecture. Um, All of these things have become very sterile. And unfortunately, a lot of this, I would argue, has entered into, uh, into the church. And it's not just our physical surroundings. Think of the way that we speak today in relationship to how Uh, people would have spoke during this time when beauty was an element of uh, of virtue. I I, I don't think that social media and shorthand uh, has helped us in this aspect whatsoever. Um, Our music, our manners, they've all become increasingly raucous and self-centered and and, uh, any defense of beauty has been looked down on. And so there's sort of this transition that has taken place. Uh, and one of, one of the things that you see if you take time to look at this sort of uh, idea of subversiveness within the arts is front and center to all of that is the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. It's all become very personal. My purposes, my desires, my pleasures, this is all at the heart of it. And so art has nothing to say in response to, uh, to any of anything in culture other than if you want to do it, do it, go for it, do your thing. And we're losing beauty, and there's a danger with that, that we lose one of the main aspects, one of the main virtues of life, because it has been given to us by God. Beauty has been central to any discussion throughout history on poetry, art, literature, film, music, all of these things through everyday life. But the world has largely turned its back on this element. Now, here's what I want to argue, and we'll spend some time on this. Beauty matters, and in large part it matters, one, because it is not subjective but is objective, that it is a universal need of human beings, 
to understand and appreciate beauty, and I think it says something keenly about our souls as to whether or not we recognize it for what it is or we don't. Why? Well, it comes down to the fact that beauty is part of God's nature. It is God's character. Beauty is defined by God because God is all beautiful. And so if we are to think about beauty as an objective thing, then we need to think about it in relationship to God. And if we think about it in relationship to God, we cannot come to the conclusion that beauty is simply in the eye of the beholder. Now, we don't deny that there are elements of beauty that uh, we may look at, and one may prefer certain things of of uh, an artistic element more than others, and so there is an element to which personal preference enters into the question. But even though I don't prefer something, or I might look at something and say, I wouldn't hang it in my house, or I hear a piece of music and say, I wouldn't listen to that in my car or whatever else, there's still an element to which we can look at it or hear it and say, I recognize objectively that there's something beautiful about this whether it's our preference or not, because there is an objective standard. What's that? Uh, no, I said beautiful. <laughs> now, we are living in a period of time where the dominant focus on everything is subjectivism, right? If we think of goodness, truth, and beauty, all three of those things have been defined subjectively, and we talked a lot about that as we thought about critical theory and postmodernism. Um, philosophies have turned to subjectivism. And so it's no doubt that the arts have been turned to subjectivism. But here's the question. Do we really think that is true? So who knows what uh, this is? Derek, what is it? Horseshoe. Yes, Horseshoe Bend. That is at the Grand Canyon in Arizona. If you've ever, never been there, you should go. It is beautiful in that picture. But not only is it beautiful in person, it is literally breathtaking. You stand to the edge of that and look and see what God has created. It will take your breath away. It is absolutely stunning. Now, I want to argue that if you see that, maybe in a photograph, but especially in person, and you walk up to the edge and look at this and just shrug your shoulders and say, nah, it's just a hole in the ground. There's something wrong with your soul. This, this is God's creation. This is God's revealing to us one of the most beautiful things that He has created in this world. And to look at it with a subjective sense of saying, well, it's not, it's not any big deal. In fact, I prefer, I prefer this. I prefer this. Now, if you look at Horseshoe Bend or a pile of trash and say, I prefer the pile of trash, there's something wrong with your soul. There's something wrong with your soul. And yet, the subjective argument that beauty is in the eye of the beholder would say that we get to make that determination. We all know that's a ridiculous idea, right? Now, we may not at this moment be able to explain why that's a ridiculous idea, but we know inherently 
because we are created in God's image and God is all beautiful, he communicates to us his nature and his character, this being a part of that in general revelation, we know that that is a foolish uh, proposition. In the same way, to look at this. Look at the intricate design of this beautiful rose. And almost, I know I look at a picture like that, I can almost kind of smell what the rose smells like, right? When I, when I was growing up every year for their anniversary, my dad would buy my mom however many roses for however many years they've been married. He still does that today. That's a lot of roses now. So um, it's, uh, I, I, can, I can just smell that. It's a beautiful smell. But look at the intricate design, all the layers of that and, and the droplets of water. It's beautiful. Objectively... That's beautiful. Now, again, you might say, well, I prefer, um, I prefer daisies or pansies or lilies or whatever over the rose, but objectively we can say there's something beautiful about that, right? No one's going to say, well, I prefer this. That's really. Now, there's something neat about the design of this, right? There's something unique about it. But if I had the choice of what to plant in front of my house, I'm probably going to go with this instead of this. And I think we all know objectively that if you think opposite, there's something wrong with your soul. Right? Again, and we're going to get to why that is, what we could say about that. But I think that we recognize that inherently. There is an objective reality here. And we have to, again, we have to acknowledge there is a subjective response. Again, you may not prefer the rose over whatever other uh, favorite flower you have, but you're not going to look at the rose and say, that is the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Yeah, I would say as a result of the fall that things within a beautiful creation have uh, appeared to us and have been made to be seen as, as ugly. Because we wouldn't say our sin or things created out of our sin are beautiful. We would recognize them as evil and ugly. And, uh, well, that's a pretty... I, there, there's... Uh, that's... Under God's sovereign decree, all of what happens, right? We have to recognize that under God's sovereign decree, that all that happens, this is part of what God's plan is. And so just as much as uh, the fall affects us, it affects all of creation. So God created us, and yet we do evil things, or we do fallen things. And in the same way, God created the rose, and when it shrivels up and dies, you remember uh, Jesus even cursing the fig tree, because the fig tree wasn't doing what the fig tree ought to do. And it was communicating something of the fall there. And so we can see that throughout all of, all of creation. That there's something here, there's something going on here that isn't pleasing to God in that it was not doing what it was created to do. What was the rose created to do? Like so many things in this world, I think its primary thing, the primary goal of God in doing that was to communicate to us something of his beauty. There are probably other uses. I think it, there, 
they helped to pollinate the earth and all of that. But primarily, why did God create the rose? He could have done something very utilitarian, right? It could just look like a blade of grass. It had everything it needed in it to give to the bees, to carry to the other plants and everything else. And, uh, and we could have just said, okay, everything's green. But he didn't do that. He created this beautiful landscape for us to look at and for us to, uh, to build in our own homes and to create in our own spaces. So this, this plays out in so many ways. We've talked about, uh, we've talked about uh, music as well. And I want to think about what are some of these elements before we run out of time. Um, what are the elements that we look at to say things are beautiful? Well, um, the philosopher Aristotle, had, um, he had four things, and then um, Thomas Aquinas came like he did with most of what he had to say and sort of stole from Aristotle and, uh, and formulated these things in, uh, in more Christianized terms. But I do think they are helpful for us to think about what they are. So the four things, and you'll, you'll hear a lot about these, especially in these conversations, are proportion, harmony, simplicity, and complexity. Now, what are those things? Well, if we're going to look at something objectively and say there's something beautiful about this, we need to think about something like proportion first. So, for example, I look at that, and I wouldn't say that's beautiful, but it does represent something, right? We've all drawn one of those. Um, but it doesn't take long to recognize that uh, the proportions are a little bit off, right? The head's probably a little bit big for that body, right? Uh, everything is, is off, but we're just representing something there, okay? There's, this wasn't drawn with the intention of creating a beautiful image, now, how does that compare to this? What's the difference? There's proportion here, isn't there? There's something here, and, and, and what, what in many ways does good art do? It mimics reality. It gets as close to reality as possible in certain forms of art. Well, there's proportion here that doesn't exist here. I wouldn't look at this and say, I prefer that over this. Again, there's something wrong if that's the case, right? Because I have something here of size and balance and, and, uh, and order. It's something real. And so it, it doesn't take much skill to do this. It takes a tremendous amount of skill to do this. This doesn't communicate to me that God is all beautiful and God has created that which is all beautiful and given tremendous amount of skill and talent to his people, this one does. Right? There's a lot that is communicated just in that form through this idea of proportion. Well, how about harmony? How do the pieces fit together in an integrated way? How does that, how does that play out? So, I'm going to really practice this, but I'm going to try my hand here. So let's think about harmony. How do things play together in a way that is beautiful versus a way that's chaotic? And so you might hear this, and John Cage, who we listened to the other day, said, 
that could be beautiful. Well, maybe, depending on what you're doing with it, but generally we hear that and we don't think that's beautiful. That's not the first thing that comes to mind. We think, um, like sometimes our children do and shouldn't do, and come up here after worship and start pounding on the piano. Mine included, don't get offended. Working with that. Um, so there's an, there's an issue here of harmony, right? This isn't always beautiful. And sometimes you'll listen to music, and if you listen to, say, a solo piano player, you recognize right away if they play a wrong note sometimes because it stands out. Or if you're singing a song during worship and you come in at the wrong time, um, that's louder than a jumbo jet flying over your house. Everyone hears it immediately, right? It just comes out. Um, and part of that, too, as, uh, they were, as uh, of, of these elements, is the issue of simplicity and complexity. Something doesn't have to be complex to be beautiful. So, for example, if you think of uh, Beethoven's song, Moonlight Sonata, it's very simple. You've probably heard this before. Simple. Beautiful. Okay, so it's simple. Now, if someone's playing that and plays, and we start to hear something different than what we know to be the song, we recognize very quickly that's not what I hear. Those notes don't go together. That's not a part of this. If I'm playing a song in a major key and all of a sudden I hit a minor note, if you know anything about music, I recognize there's a clash here. There starts to become a clash, even in things that we recognize that are supposed to be um, uh, more, uh, more free, if you will, or improvised. So jazz is a good example of that. A lot of people listen to jazz music and say, I don't understand it, I don't like it, and that's fine. Um, it's a, it is an issue of preference, but in there we recognize there's still form, there's still order, there's still something going on, and we still hear bad and wrong clashing things because our ears are attuned to the reality of beauty. And when I hear that, I recognize that is not beautiful. And so you don't hear the resolution sometimes. So if you hear something very simple, like a, a little jazz conclusion, like... If I just end the song there, that's not a good ending. There's no resolution, right? You need the rest of it. You need something to bring it to an end so that in the end you can say... It's resolved. Now, again, that's simple. It's not complex. And yet, we don't have this clash where everything inside of us is saying, we need something more here. We need to conclude this. And so, this idea... Yes? How does it transfer, though, to... It doesn't look like anything. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's a great question. I think something like music or literature or film... Those things, drawing those conclusions, are a lot easier to me than something like especially modern art. Um, 
And I think a lot of that gets back to what we talked about a few weeks ago in an understanding and having some sense of what is, what is the point here? What is trying to be? What are they trying to communicate? What are the purposes of that? We looked at the art by the Christian, Mako Fujimari, and said, okay, well, uh, some, I think uh, Wendy said, it looks like, uh, you know, it looks like maybe a background of something or some nice wallpaper maybe, but is that really something I would just want to stand in an art gallery and stare at and have some kind of sense of completion, some kind of sense of beauty, some kind of sense of uh, this is not clashing? Um, maybe not. I think some of that has to do with most of us are probably far more familiar with all the other forms. To come to something like that is so foreign to us that to have any sense of sort of the conclusive nature of it. But there is a massively subjective element to that, to where I would come to it and say, well, I would probably add a dot of red over here, or whatever that may be. Um, what, is being, what is being communicated? So you're right, though. That's, that's when, and this is why you don't see a lot of that coming out until um, more recent time period, because before, art, by and large, was utilized to communicate something of the realm of reality, of nature, of humanity, um, of the sacred, really. Art was so, for so long utilized to illustrate, to define that which is sacred. And, uh, and when uh, it moves from that uh, to something else, we have a hard time recognizing its association and therefore a hard time recognizing proportion and simplicity or complexity and uh, all these things we're talking about. So I agree with you. That's a... Right. Well, and those are some... Sure, sure. And so I think we have a basis there then on which to look at some of these things and say, objectively, is that beautiful? Maybe it's applauded in culture. Maybe people think it's this great work of art. Maybe it's selling for millions and millions of dollars. But we have an objective standard on which to base things, and that is the all-beautiful God who has communicated to us naturally, generally, do I look at that and say, that is something of a work of beauty? Maybe it took a tremendous amount of talent to do that, but maybe it didn't. (laughs) Maybe it didn't. And so we need to be able to think critically instead of get caught up in the craze uh, of what everyone tells us we're supposed to think about these things.